good song. Colossians chapter 3, of course, is where we'll be today. That should come as no surprise to you. As we continue to unpackage the, the meaning of this significant epistle and, of course, this chapter, we will continue to consider our union with Christ, which is the overarching theme of the epistle, and in a point that Paul wants to make certain that the Colossian believers are fully grasping and comprehending in the face of the onslaught of the teaching from the false teacher in their midst. And it's significant that he takes them back to the foundation of their union with Christ to thwart everything that the false teacher is presenting to them, something that we ought to be reminded of when we hear other things that are being foisted upon us as the gospel um, or things that are taking our eyes off of Christ. We need to go back to these foundational truths um, and to make certain that we are indeed grasping them. Before we get into the Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, whose creation and the work of whose hands we are, grant us to know that we exist and move in you alone, so that we may submit ourselves unto you, not merely being directed by your secret providence, but showing ourselves your willing and obedient followers as it become sons. Thus, may we endeavor to glorify your name in this world till we arrive at the enjoyment of that blessed heritage which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ our Lord, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this series of sermons is Chosen for Holiness, and Paul here is certainly going to be driving home the point that we indeed have been chosen by God to demonstrate the reality of a conversion, a regeneration that was ordained before the very foundation of the world. Ultimately, Paul's exhortation to the Colossian believers is this, you are holy, so act like it. And that's the simple summary, if you will, of the exhortation that we're going to see here, beginning with verse 12 and through 17, and indeed all to ultimately through the balance of the chapter and into chapter 4 as he gets very practical. We've been talking about the indicatives, the ideas of uh, the doctrines that are present, that we understand about the work and person of Jesus Christ, who he is, who we are in him, and ultimately what that means for us as the redeemed of God. And so beginning with verse 12, let's read. In fact, let's go back to verse 9. Uh, to kind of pick up with this train of thought that Paul has been uh, talking about and, and, and exhorting us in. Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. We're going to find this put on, put off language again, this, this uh, tailoring sartorial language as we have recognized it in the past. This is important imagery for Paul and it should be for us as well. So do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no, there cannot be, there never must be any distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, beginning with verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. 
beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, this issue of unity for Paul is going to be an important theme, an important point uh, for him. And it's important in, to, to recognize and to begin to form in your own mind what the basis of the unity is. Today, we hear much about unity, but it's typically a unity that requires compromise. Um, in the context of ecumenical type approaches to things, it seems as if those who hold to the truths ultimately concede them to those who don't in order to get along, to go along. That's wrong. He's not speaking of that kind of unity at all. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, a 15-sermon series. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them, a one-sermon series. <laughs> Can I hear an amen out there, huh? <laughs> Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. We may never get out of that verse, I don't know. <laughs> For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. There's so much there. We're going to be talking about that, dads, quite a bit. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Wow, powerful passage. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Well, as we can see from just reading this balance of the chapter 3, that there's a lot for us that we're called to. The idea of holiness is certainly important for Paul. It's important in Scripture. It's important because holiness is an attribute of God, and we serve a holy God. We are his people. And of course, he then wants his children to be like he is in the context of holiness and to have a heart for holiness and to pursue holiness. And as we've seen so far in chapter 3, it is fundamentally God's work to make us holy in the practical sense, just as it was in the positional sense. And he uses whatever means he sees fit to bring us into holy living encouragement, exhortation, the preaching of the word, the ordinary means of grace, discipline even, as we know from the book of Hebrews, are a man, manner and means by which God brings about holiness in his people. Importantly, God has predestined, predestined all believers to be conformed to the image of his Son. We know that from Romans 8.29, and we're going to look at that passage in greater detail. The process toward that goal is called typically sanctification, growth, transformation here in Colossians, renewal, this ongoing process of renewal being conformed into the image as God presses harder and harder the image of his son onto us as we're formed into him in the context of our behavior and our conduct and our thinking. This process of transformation into the image of Christ begins at our new, new birth and continues until we die and enter into the presence of the Lord. We cannot forget that. 
We are always in the process of being transformed and renewed. God's Spirit is always working within us, within the context of the triune God's divine purpose in saving us. Now, that is a theme, an idea that I want you to make certain that you're always holding on to. I was saved for a reason. I was saved by God for a purpose. This is certainly important for us, and that purpose is not that you and I have everything that we want or everything that we desire and that everything is hunky-dory and perfect for us, but rather that through our living, through our conduct, we exemplify and exalt Jesus Christ and praise his name. The Reformers would capture this in the idea of the expression of soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone, and that is ultimately the life that we live. Paul reminds us of that in the balance of, in the latter portion of chapter 3 at the end of verse 24, where he says to us, is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The Puritans would often say that all of life is worship, and you can see from the balance of chapter 3 that it really is, is it not? That chapter 3 is a repetition, a repeating of all the things that Christians ultimately do and how we act and how we interact with each other, with the people in the community, with the people in the church, and with our wives and with our children, and with each other in the context of being in the body of Christ. In the future, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that our spirits will be made perfect, but we're not perfect now. God is working in us and working out our salvation in us. We, too, work with Him in that context, pursuing the things that He has put before us with a glad heart, a willing attitude, and a desire to live for Him and to please Him. Contrary to many bumper stickers, we do not let go and let God. We embrace what He has given to us. We are enraptured by the mercy that has been extended to us. We are overcome by His grace We embrace the idea of the fact that His grace is always transforming us, and we revel in that and live in it moment by moment. Knowing that the transformation will be completed, and those whom God has saved, those whom He has begun a good work in, He will see it to completion. He will indeed finish it. This doctrine through the church ages has been recognized as the the preservation and perseverance of the saints. And it's rooted in the doctrine of election, which Paul preaches here and teaches us here in verse 12. And so our election incorporates the idea that God instills within us a desire to pursue our new inclinations for holiness. This is why I've titled the series of messages chosen for holiness. God chose us and instilled within us then as a con- in the context of that choosing an innate desire It's woven into the fabric of our very lives, bearing in mind that we are new creation. Remember back in verse 9 and verse 10 that there's this transformation, the new man, the picture of Adam, all that's incorporated within the creation, the idea that God has clothed us in this new garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ motivates us and moves us towards this holiness to which we are called. This is often misunderstood, and I I would submit to you that in part it's misunderstood because we don't understand the doctrine of election. That word, there are many pastors who have stood in pulpits their entire ministry and have never even said it. And indeed, there are pastors who avoid the passages in Scripture that clearly teach it and proclaim it. Well, we don't do that here at Community Bible Church. 
we embrace and we love the Word of God and we deal with these words and these passages when they are presented to us, and that's what's being presented to us today in verse 12 unequivocally. And so as I, as I noted, our election incorporates the idea that God instills within us a desire to pursue our new inclinations for holiness. It wouldn't make any sense otherwise, would it? Let's go back to Romans just by way of reminder, and let's consider again just what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. This, this passage is so profound, it's familiar to us, um, which doesn't, doesn't breed contempt, but, but encourages us and exhorts us. We want to be familiar with these passages. We want to understand them. And verse 29 says in eight, Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 29, if you have your Bibles, I trust that you do. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed, and look at the language. Those whom he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So there is a consequence to what God's intention and plan was for us. And the word foreknew there in verse 29, importantly, is the Greek word prognosko, which means that which he loved beforehand, to love intimately, not just in a casual kind of familial uh, brotherly way, but intimately, directly focused, intentional love that's directed toward you that brought about your incorporation into the body of Christ. It, it, the result of this foreknowledge, the result of this forelove, if you will, was to bring you into union with Jesus Christ. This is the sovereign act of God, and it's no small matter. And we need to understand that. Election, of course, is about God. It's about what God is doing. It's about what God desired. And it's about God's purpose and his plan. It's not about us ultimately in the context of, of our sense of what's fair or our sense of what should, should have been done, who should have been chosen, who should not have been chosen, any of that. Ours is to recognize that God acted sovereignly and he wasn't obligated to act towards us in any way or respect that he did so out of love and mercy. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, we understand that Paul tells us that those whom he foreloved, if you will, he then did something. That there was a purpose in God electing. There was a plan, as we know from Ephesians chapter 1, that God would elect for him a, a people before the very foundation of the world in Christ Jesus who would then be identified as belonging to him, whom he would then give to his son as a gift to reign and rule with him in his kingdom forever. And so, as a consequence of that, something then happens. And so, this word predestined in verse 29 is important. That is to be foreordained. That is to put into motion, to create. He gave us the ability, He made us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's ultimately what Paul is speaking to here in Colossians chapter 3, beginning really with verse 9 and moving into verse 10 and 11 and 12. It's interesting to me that the consequences of this transformation, this ongoing process of renewal, this idea of being conformed into something breaks down a lot of divisions. It brings about unity. Isn't it interesting that the doctrine of election brings unity? Oh, come on. Yeah, it does. That the basis for our unity, that the whole predicate for Paul's argument about being unified within the body of Christ begins with the election. 
You talk to people about election today, they get red in the face. They get mad. Oh, who, who, who are you? How dare you? That's not fair. That, that can't be. God wouldn't do that. Well, that's your perspective. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of what God intends and has planned. And so, we see then that there is a consequence to election. The consequence is conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that we become little gods like the Mormons teach or that we become um, little gods like the, the, some Pentecostals teach and, and other things. No, but we are ultimately expressing the reality of our election by and through our pursuit and conformity to the things that please God, ethical, ethical moral conduct as ordained by God, which is what this is all about in Colossians. If you look at the balance of Colossians chapter 3, what is it? It's an ethics guidebook for Christians. It's exactly what it is. How do Christians act? What do Christians do? Now, if you read through the verses there in verses 12 through 25, you'll see that they reflect the very things that are of the nature of Christ. Indeed, does he not say in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? Everything relates back to him, ultimately. And so this is in part what Paul wants us to see here in verse 12. That is that Christianity is such that its theology and ethics are by their very nature inseparable. So that's important. Theology and ethics are inseparable. That's, that's incredibly important for the church to understand and for us to understand as we begin to unpackage this important passage the idea that theology and ethics are by their very nature inseparable. For it is neither a merely intellectual statement of philosophy nor merely a system of rules for conduct. I'm not just giving you a philosophy, an idea. Keep this in mind. I'm not just giving you a new list of things to do. I'm not imposing upon you a list of new restrictions and new regulations. No, these are the things that flow out of and are the very essence of what it means to be the redeemed of God. Now, granted, these occur within our lives in varying degrees, and there are times when these virtues are more evident than others as we struggle with sin, as we're buffeted by Satan, as we take our eyes off of Christ, as we abandon the ordinary means of grace. This is why it's so important to be mindful of what it is that you're doing and who you're doing it with and what you're engaged with. For Paul, this is an imperative for us to be certainly understood it's an imperative that flows out of the important doctrine of election. These conducts, these behaviors are part and parcel of what it means to be elected. You were elected to do this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Just to make certain that we're grasping fully the, the full magnitude of, of, the, of this doctrine, a, a familiar passage to us, Paul setting forth in the first uh, uh, eight verses, who it is we were. Verse, I mean, for the first nine verses, God saving us, children of wrath, saved by grace. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 5, He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Why? In verse 7, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We've been saved by grace, verse 8, we didn't do it, 
Why? So we can't boast about it. Verse 9 and verse 10. The ultimate reason, the ultimate outcome of this saving faith, this amazing grace, is what? We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Our best life now. Having everything I want. No. For what? Good works. Good works. Now, who prepared? Who made the good works? God did. God prepared beforehand the good works that we would walk in them. That's amazing. And so we are equipped. We are instilled with an innate desire, a sense, if you will, as it relates to what God's Word says a Christian ought to do and ought not to do. And we'll see that Paul draws a contrast between the virtues that are identified in this particular passage, beginning with verse 12, to those types of of other things that the world engages in in the preceding verses that we saw in chapter 3 that relate to the immoral conduct of the world. There's really a contrast and comparison, if you will, of the two categories. Those things that the world pursues versus those things that Christians pursue and exhibit in their lives. So that's important for us to be mindful of. As we know from our studying in Colossians, it is our union with Christ which drives us and compels us, which means faith and practice in one, pattern and power together, if you will. If I'm connected to Jesus Christ, the result is that I'm being empowered to live out the reality of that life. Indeed, Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 2, um, 2 Peter chapter 1, that we are partakers of the divine nature. That's to the extent to which we are empowered to do these things. So our mind, our will, and our emotions working in cooperation as an expression of the reality of what Paul has taught us in verses 9 through 10, being transformed, being renewed into the image of Christ by and through the new nature that we have been given. Um, This is really quite beautiful for us to ponder. So here in verse 12, it is in keeping with this that the doctrinal indicative stating a fact, this is what Paul does, as those who have been chosen of God, is followed by the ethical or moral imperative put on. So look at verse 12. Turn back to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll see this. So, as those who have been chosen of God. There's the doctrine. All right, you're going to see just a really clear snapshot here of how Paul thinks and operates through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. The word so reaches back into the foundational truths that have been communicated to us already. The word as is a statement of fact related to your position, who it is you are. You are this. You are chosen by God the chosen of God. And so Paul uses that, in, that, in, that indicative, that doctrine, to then serve as the foundation for what it is that you then will do next, which is to what? Put on a heart of compassion. These things that are the ethical behaviors of the redeemed of God. So Paul's point is this. Christian conduct is the result, not simply of the effort to be good, but of incorporation into the body of Christ, an incorporation brought about by God's loving election of the redeemed before the foundation of the world and who are the product of the gospel. You are a product of the gospel. God has renewed you. God has recreated you. He has brought life to you by and through the gospel. 
And so in verse 11, Paul says that neither race nor class matters because of that. Christ is all that matters. Christ is all. Christ is everything. That's the conclusion, ultimately, of verse 11. Christ is all that matters, and you've been joined to Christ by God. So now, do what? Lovingly live out the reality of that, ethic, of that ethically with each other. Live it out in reality. If you are the elect of God, it's axiomatic. It necessarily follows that you're going to do these things. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Romans 8, 29. To be conformed. God's doing that. God's working that in you. And so Paul's making a very practical point, and a profound point, really, a point which has been lost upon our, our current generation of so-called woke and social justice Christians. And the point is this. I stand on the shoulder of someone named Graham Goldsworthy in a book that he wrote called Gospel and Kingdom. He makes a profound point about the idea of who we are in Christ and the result of the consequences of it in terms of gospel impact and the gospel in the kingdom. He says this, Jesus Christ contains in himself the kingdom of God. He is everything. And we understand that, right? From Colossians chapter 1, Paul sets out for us very passionately, beginning with verse 13, all that is in Christ, all that is Christ, all that he is in the context of his existence and his purpose and his rule and his reign and his role, all of it's laid out there. He is everything. He concludes verse 11 with that affirmation again. And as the redeemed of God, we must understand that. That is, in some, that is something that we don't reject, we don't deconstruct, we don't ignore, we don't invo- avoid in order to get along with people either. We rest fully in him. And so that concluding passage in verse 11 is important for us. It calls us to really rest in him who is all, right? And him that is complete. There is no other place for us to go, and where else would we go? There is nowhere. So again, back to this quote from Goldsworthy, Jesus Christ contains in himself the kingdom of God. He is everything. The gospel is a gospel of man restored the proper relationship in Christ. Now, these relationships involve the whole of reality, God, man, and the created order. All right? Now, think about this, what he's saying. The gospel is a gospel of man restored to proper relationship in Christ, to proper relationships in Christ. Now, these relationships involve the whole of reality, God, man, and the created order. So now I see everything through that lens. There aren't any occasions. There is never an opportunity, nor should there be a desire on your part to remove your gospel glasses. You don't take them off. And you say, well, this is a situation where the gospel glasses come off. there, There are many opinions and many perspectives, and so the gospel doesn't really touch on these areas. We must reach into other arenas, other ideas, be they secular or otherwise, in order to fully grasp and comprehend these things. No, I never take off my gospel glasses. I'm always viewing everything in relationship to the fact that Christ is all, right? Now, do you see this? This is insanely important. 
This is where the problem has crept into the church because what we're doing now is that we're trying to resolve problems that are in the church outside of the gospel. We have taken off our gospel glasses. And so we have issues regarding race or homosexuality or politics or division or whatever it may be, fear. We aren't viewing those things through the lenses of the gospel, rather that we are incorporating into the gospel in some syncretistic way ideas from man in order to make the gospel more palatable or, in what our opinion, more effective. Well, we can't really understand race relations, relations unless we incorporate critical race theory from Karl Marx. You've got to be kidding me. Honestly, you've got to be kidding me. No, that's not what we do. Because Karl Marx does the exact same thing that Paul condemned in verse 11. He divides and conquers. That's the whole theory of Marxism. It's class warfare. There are tons of distinctions and categories within that idea. Paul says no. And I think Goldsworthy makes an important point. We're always looking at things in the terms of this reality. The reality of Jesus Christ. So God, man, and the created order are always in perspective that way. He goes on to say, as Eden and Canaan are in Christ, so God's perfect world is in Christ. We know that from Colossians chapter 1 as well. This truth has one vital implication often forgotten by evangelicals, but which the Old Testament reinforces by its historical authenticity. And that's an important point. So what we understand then is this. The gospel is not simply forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when you die. That's what a lot of Christians think. You stop a Christian on the street and you ask them about the gospel, that's likely what they're going to tell you. It's about the forgiveness of sins. It's about going to heaven, blah, 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 kind of casually dismissive about it. No wonder, no magnitude, no overwhelming sense of God's grace and the transforming nature of it. No idea that I'm in a constant state of renewal by and through the work of the Holy Spirit. No sense in which I've been being, I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's just about my get out of hell card. Well, the gospel is simply not forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when you die. The gospel is a restoration of relationships between God, man, and the world. Think about that for a minute. The gospel is a restoration of relationships between God, man, and the world. So, when I look at verse 12, what do I do? Well, I look at it and I say, okay, so? So what, Paul? Well, reach back, John, into what I've just taught you. Okay, Christ is everything. There's a foundation. I've been saved. I've been redeemed by God's sovereign grace and mercy. I've been chosen by him before the foundation of the world. What is the consequences of that? Isn't it interesting that the consequences of it is about relationships? About the way I view the world? About the way I interact with other people? About the way I engage them, even in the context of my family and my job? Even if I'm a slave, it impacts that. This is, am this is amazing. All of a sudden, Paul is saying to me, the gospel reaches into every area of my life, so much so that the consequences of my election is that I'm going to engage with other people in a way that's counter to what the world does. I'm going to do what? I'm going to put on a heart of compassion. We'll talk more about what that means. It's significant. 
The Puritans used to call it the bowels of mercy. Maybe your King James Version Bible says that. What on earth are bowels of mercy? That sounds gross, Mom. <laughs> I'm not sure I want that. If you live on a farm, you've seen a lot of bowels, I'm sure. It's that, it's that inner emotional sense of which you are given over to someone else. It's a beautiful picture, if you will. But this is the, the idea. The gospel is the restoration of relationships between God, man, and the world. So, what Paul is going to do is to kind of say to me, uh, hey, hey, slave, love your master. But he's mean to Love your master. But he's unfair. You love your master. Serve him. But why? Because Jesus was a suffering servant. But, but that's not fair. Hold on. You're in Christ. You must see your master in the context of that Christ is in all things. Husbands, love your wife. Oh, I can't love her. You haven't had to live with her. <laughs> Wives, submit. Oh, no, don't you dare use that word around me. I'm, a, I'm not a feminist, but I might be. No, we see everything through the lens of Scripture. This is the point that Paul wants us to make certain that we understand, and it's grounded and rooted in the doctrine of election. So again, the gospel is a restoration of relationships between God, man, and the world. The typology of the Bible and the transformation of, of, of our imagery by the gospel should not be misused to lift us outside the created world. Rather, the gospel involves us not only with God, but with our fellow man and with the world. I love that. How this fact should affect the Christian's view of the world, politics, culture, the arts, ecology, and science should be our continuing concern and form the basis of any Christian conversation about such things. We hear so much today about all of these things, do we not? But rarely do we hear the Christian view about them. Rarely do we hear anybody talking about race relations in the context of the doctrine of election. What a novel idea. But Paul did it. I mean, just think about what he just did. Think about the fact that he just told us that the idea of our salvation incorporates within it a renewal, a pressing in of Christ's image on us, so much so that there cannot be any barriers of distinction between us as the redeemed of God. We do not bring them back in. They cannot exist. They are obliterated. Yet what we see today in the church is a reincorporation of those things on a continuous basis, a rejection of the idea that the gospel, the true gospel, impacts these things and forms our minds about them. And so, as a consequence, we abandoned, as Christians, the field of politics and culture and the arts and ecology and science. We've turned it all over to the world. We have no opinion. We can't have an opinion. We're Christians. Come on. 
No, the gospel informs us. It, it, it frames our minds as it relates to how we interact with this. And because we are the redeemed of God, because we are being conformed to the image of his son, we step into the arena and we proclaim Christ and him crucified. And we say to people, there is a perspective that is driven by God and it is the truth. It's the whole truth. It's true truth. Hear me and listen. Listen. But we have abrogated the field to everyone else, even within the Christian community. I was listening to an art, a, a podcast recently, and this person was critiquing and analyzing an issue within the church. This person did not have a single Christian expert to analyze the problem, but he had a raging left-wing feminist, a bunch of social, socialist professors from colleges, and a lot of left-wing politicians to analyze and critique what was happening within the church. It was a joke. It was a joke. His vision was not being viewed through the lens of Scripture, the gospel glasses. What happens when we take the gospel glasses off? Well, we have what? Division. Isn't it funny that today that the church is marked by so much division? Why is that? Because we're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about everything else but we're not talking about the gospel. It's the gospel that unifies. It's Christ that brings unity. It's understanding who we are in Christ that brings unity. And seeing each other in that context brings unity. And when you step out of that arena, when we are engaged with our culture without our gospel glasses on, then you are engaged in a form of a religion, but it's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's another gospel. So here in verse 12, Paul continues with this idea of picturing, picturing putting something on, this, this, this sartorial tailoring kind of picture, which is so important to Paul. And so he uses the phrase put on as we see in verse 12. This is the consequences of our ongoing renewal of which he speaks in verse 10. So it's, it's not something just a one and done it's a continuing process, a constant renewal, a constant forming. We are always being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is a command on our part, to us rather, to seek heavenly things as a result of having died to the old creation and having been raised with Christ into the new heavenly world. That's the whole point of the verses that we've just looked at, 1 through 11, ultimately. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Well, we clothe ourselves with the attributes of the new man. This is what we do. We've been talking about clothing, and so the picture is the idea of things that we've taken off. Go back to verse 5 in chapter 3. There's, there, we're dead to immorality, the mortification. We're taking those things off, that list of five things. We see that again in verse 9. We don't lie to one another. We, don't, we, we see it as well um, in, verse, in verse 8. We, we put those things away. Those old clothes are taking off. And now in verse 12, we're putting on the new clothes. These things that demonstrate the reality of our conversion, of our regeneration. God working through us by his Holy Spirit, instilling us a desire to pursue these things out of loving obedience to him, not out of drudgery, 
not out of, out of some type of morbid fear, but out of joyful love, which strengthens me and compels me to move forward. And so what do we do? We clothe ourselves with the attributes of the new man, which means to reflect the new man's character. Do you see this? The consequence of the renewal in verse 10 is that there is now no more division within the body of Christ. We don't recognize the categories of the world. We don't rest in them. We don't argue them. We don't fight them. And I continue to con- in that process by clothing myself in these attributes that reflect my new character. Such ethical clothing is necessary also because it must affect the condition, it must reflect the condition of those who are chosen of God, right? It only makes sense that if I'm chosen of God, the predicate for me putting on is the fact that I'm chosen. This is what chosen people do. This is what the elect do. What do the elect do? Well, they put on new clothes. What do those clothes look like? Well, one of them is a heart of compassion. Another one is kindness. Another one is humility. Another one is gentleness. Another is patience. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. You see Peter listing out those virtues there as well. These are the attributes, the character of the new man, the new person, the new woman in Christ. This is necessary. It has to follow. So, importantly, Paul wants us to see that we have been elected, chosen by God unto a purpose, a purpose, a purpose ordained by our triune God for His glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. We see then here that election has a purpose and an Old Testament connection that further amplifies its significance for us. So, we have to pay attention to words. It's important that we pay close attention to words. So, first of all, let's consider this. Let's consider election's purpose. What was the purpose of election? Well, Paul says to me in verse 12, and to you this, as those who have been chosen, perhaps your translation says elect, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. The New American Standard says so as those who have been chosen of God, reaching back into the idea that it's a past act with a present reality. A past act with a present reality. Our internal condition eclipses the external circumstances ultimately and is manifested in the demonstration of these attributes because we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's important for us to remember. So, why election. And I think this is why many people misunderstand it. They get angry about election because they're not seeing election from God's perspective, but only from their own perspective. Keeping in mind this, election is about Christ and the Trinity's eternal purposes. It's only about us in the context that we are the beneficiaries and recipients of grace that we didn't otherwise deserve. The result of which is that we're transformed and made into something different, a new humanity. There's an aspect, though, of election that we often forget or perhaps have never even considered. Why did God elect us? Arthur Pink offers important insight into this, and he says this. 
in our election, God had his son in view as God-man and in his design of him as our end. He chose us for his sake, that we might be his fellows, Psalm 45, 7, we read it this morning, that we might be his fellows or companions, that as he was God's delight, so we might be his delight. Thus we were given to Christ first, not as sinners to be saved by him, but as sinless members to a sinless head, as a sovereign gift to his person for his honor and pleasure, and to be partakers of a supernatural glory with him and from him. That's beautiful. I love that idea. Do you, are you, do you understand the impact of what he's saying? God, God didn't give us to Christ as a group of just reprobate, horrible people. What he was giving to Christ was people who are redeemed, renewed in Christ, already given to him in that way. It's a precious gift. You're a wonderful gift. That was God's intention and purpose. Now again, let's be be reminded We were given to Christ first, not as sinners to be saved by him. Here, here Christ, I'm going to give you all these people and now save them. Mm -mm. He says this, we were given to Christ first, not as sinners to be saved by him, but as sinless members to a sinless head, capital H, as a sovereign gift. Do you know that you're a sovereign gift? Isn't that wonderful? You want value, you want worth, you want, to talk, you want to talk to people about their value and their worth, talk to them about them being a sovereign gift from God to Christ. And use the doctrine of election. Shocking. And he's, we're given to him for what? His honor and pleasure. And to be partakers of a supernatural glory with him and from him. And so Paul reaches into that dynamic. Look, look what he says. As those who have been chosen of God, past, right? He, def- he identifies them in what category? Already in that context. Holy and beloved. That, that's what you are already. Holy and beloved. So, so God gives us to the Son in the context of that dynamic of that position. That's wonderful for us. That's very powerful. And so when we see the doctrine of election in this context, it changes our perspective about it. It lets us see it in a way that allows us to revel in the wonder of God's grace. It's beautiful. And so what we then understand is that against the backdrop of fallen humanity, as my dad would often say, God chose for himself a people a people of his own possession, Titus 2.14. A people that God has redeemed and brought into a renewed life, a new life, and given to the Son for the purpose of reflecting Christian character and attributes in a dark and fallen world. That's who we are. That's what election is about. And it's sure and it's certain. There is no question about our election. It cannot be taken away from us. We cannot lose it. We do not become unelect. You can never become unelected. 
You're not like a politician. The Trinity isn't up in heaven right now voting, well, do we keep Joel or not? No, absolutely not. You are secure, perfectly complete, and kept in the finished work of Christ based upon the proclamation and decision of a triune God before the very foundation of the world. That's beautiful, and that's wonderful. And we consider the, the character then of the elect. Look what they end up doing. Look how they act. We are people who are ones of compassion and kindness and humility. This is what flows out of that. So God's perfect was perfect in that those whom He chose to save are and will be saved, and none have been or will be lost. And if you need verses for that, you've got John 6, 37, 39, 44, 45, 63, 64, and 65. We are secure in Christ. We are kept by Him. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. All that the Father calls will come. None can come unless He calls them. Jesus Christ's work is complete. The bottom line is that the elect are secure and that they will live out in full-orbed glory all that God intended. Now, in conclusion, we see the doctrine of election. And, and I would encourage you to go back to the confessions about the doctrine of election too if you have further questions. The London Baptist Confession has a good section on the decrees of God relative to election and speaks to the purposes of God's ordaining and elect people for himself to unite them with Christ to bring about the very idea that we're talking about here, a transformed people who live and act differently and reflect the holiness of Christ. The confessions are important that way. But look at this in conclusion. Secondly, there's an Old Testament connection in election. As noted, the ethical clothing befits the condition of those who are chosen holy and beloved. Now, maybe your mind's beginning to wander back into the Old Testament. Maybe, but maybe not. If not, I'll lead you there. A more accurate reading of the passage based on the original Greek is this, clothe yourselves because you are the elect ones of God, holy and beloved. Importantly, the words used by Paul, chosen or elect, holy and beloved, are descriptions of what in the Old Testament? Israel. They are descriptions of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to take you someplace that perhaps you've not been before, but that's okay. New paths can be fun paths. And so what Paul is doing here is, is reaching back into the Old Testament proclamation of what God had originally said about Israel. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Now, I want you to consider the language. Now, this, this is impactful. It's impactful in that the doctrine of election is tied into a purpose and a plan for us that is related to God's overarching story in the Bible. Paul uses language very specifically here. These words are not here by mistake. 
the Bible could have simply said, you are the chosen of God, right? But it doesn't. It says, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, for you are a holy people, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's talking about Israel here. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what, what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is, is using the very same language to describe Christians that he uses to describe Israel originally in Deuteronomy. As you'll see in Deuteronomy, the reference to Israel is made as this. You are a holy people. God has chosen you. The Lord did choose you. The Lord loved you. So you see right there that you have a reaching back into the Old Testament to incorporate the idea that, that, that we are, in a sense, identified with Israel as the church. The church. So who are we? Paul uses similar language in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, where he combines beloved with election in that passage with similar implication for the church's continuation as the, as the true spiritual Israel. This is important for us. This has significant implications for us because begin to see then that the doctrine of election is not just connected to us in the context of, 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 of a choice that's made, but to bring about the absolute continuation and fulfillment of all that God intended for his people, Israel being a picture of the church. We don't become ethnic Israel, but we are spiritual Israel. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. And like I said, this may be a new path for you, but we have to make certain that we're seeing the language, that we're understanding the language as Paul is intending it for us to understand it. Keeping in mind this, the promised children of Abraham are those and only those who are united to Christ in faith. Not all physical Israel are of spiritual Israel. Both Jews and his body, the church, constitute the true Israel, in and for whom all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment and for whom Christ died. That's it. Now, what that does is all of a sudden now, I'm going to have to see Scripture through the lens of a purpose that eclipses everything, that brings about the promises that are contained in all of Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, that are consummated in the church, and will be fully consummated when Christ returns in glory. And so, we then take great comfort in knowing that our election not only is to, is to bring us into salvation, but to incorporate us into all the promises that are contained in Scripture. So when I read the Old Testament, my view is driven by the idea that I am connected to something bigger than just me, but an entire plan and purpose 
ordained by God before the very foundation of the world. This is, this is big stuff for us. It's important. Now, of course, Israel still exists. Ethnic Israel, is, we don't replace ethnic Israel. But the point of the Old Testament is to point us to the fact that there is a spiritual Israel. Who are the children of Abraham? Who is the seed of Abraham? Who is more numerous than the sands of the seashore? For what purpose did Christ die? What are the purposes of the promises? What are the purposes of the covenants? And what are they fulfilled? They are fulfilled in Christ. Who belongs to Christ? You belong to Christ. Who are you? You're the body of Christ. That's what matters. That's what matters. So we see here that Paul is ultimately making, through the doctrine of election, the point that the church is the true spiritual Israel, who under, the mantle, under that mantle owes its call to God's service entirely to his initiative and, un, to his initiative and unmerited love. And as a consequence of this, as were the Israelites originally, we are called then to be that light, to be that salt, to be that beacon that God has intended from the very beginning. Christians may be called to clothe themselves, and we are. We are called to put on a corresponding character befitting our status as God's true spiritual Israel and as ones united to the true seed of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. Go back and look at Galatians 3.16. They're not, they're not offsprings, it's an offspring, singular. That's important. We'll talk more about that. Well, we'll leave you there today. We'll pick up next week with a continuation of breaking down the meaning of these words as it relates to who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, listen, you may not know who Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. And you may say to me, well, pastor, I don't really understand the doctrine of election. I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know if you're elect either. You don't have a big E on your head. That would make ministry really easy. It would make outreach incredibly easy. What are we going to do tonight? I'm just going to go down the street and see who has an E on their head, and I'm going to talk to them. No. But you've heard the gospel today. You've heard about Jesus Christ. We understand that he came. He lived a perfect life because you couldn't, wouldn't, shall never do it. And so in faith... You look to Christ. You don't look to yourself. You don't think about how faithful you've been. You don't think about the fact that you can try harder. Well, well, pastor, if I just try harder, if I go home today and just be a good guy today, if I'm nice to my, 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 my wife and my kids and I don't kick the dog and yell at the cat, then everything will be okay. No, it won't be okay. You will die and wake up in hell. I promise. I promise that will happen. But... If you look to Jesus Christ, if you turn to him in faith, in recognition of the fact that you're nothing, you have nothing to give, you can't do anything, but cry out like blind Bartimaeus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for opening up these passages to us, help us to better understand them, help us to grasp the wonder, the magnitude, the significance, help us to keep our gospel glasses on, Lord. Thank you for putting them on us. 
And thank you for the fact that in spite of our failures and our fallings, Christ is always steadfast. He's always been perfect. He always will be perfect for us. He makes intercession for us. We praise you for that. We rejoice that he is our advocate. We rejoice that we are known by you through him. Keep us, preserve us, compel us to move forward through your spirit, instill us with a heart's desire to love you more, to know you more deeply, to be enraptured with you. Thank you for loving us first. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.